Hello, and welcome back to Vox Popcast, the weekly pseudo-academic roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-hosts, Monica and Wayne. How's it going, guys? Hey, Mav. Welcome back. Welcome <laughs> Yeah. You were on the show. I last was week. here last week. <laughs> yeah, we, <laughs> welcome back, Monica, as well. <laughs> welcome back to the like real world rather than convention land. Wow. Yeah, or I, I don't know who follows me on social media aside from listening to the show. But so last week, if you listened to the show last week, we were in, or I was in San Antonio, Texas, for our annual conference that we go to. But nobody else went with me, and that's a shame because if the rest of you had gone. You could have caught COVID with me. That would have been great, wouldn't it? Have? <laughs> Darn. <laughs> that would have been fun. <laughs> you all missed out on. No, I went to Disney World, and all we got was this disease. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> the FOMO is contagious, literally. Yeah. <laughs> oh no! I mean, I, I had a really great time. I enjoyed the conference. My talk went excellent. I won an award, which I'll talk about in a second. And then I left and on the way back, like on the plane, I was just sitting there in my middle seat. And all of a sudden, like this wave of heat came over me and my head started throbbing and my stomach got very nauseous and like my throat got raspy. I mean, this is like in a in over a period of five seconds. It was just like, oh, I guess I'm really sick. Yeah, this is it. I have COVID now. And I knew like immediately I was just like, I feel like hell. All of a sudden, and then I landed on the ground. I had to wait for my bag, and then Steph picked me up. I kept my mask on in the car, and then I was just like, "Take me home. I need to take a COVID test." Got home, tested, and it's like, and it's, you know, the tests are like, you know, yeah, it takes fifteen minutes for results to show. No, like ninety seconds. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's just like right. Yeah. It's like I tested. I put the swab in. You know, sealed it up, and it goes. Yeah, that red line's appearing real fast. <laughs> it was just like, and it was like at ninety seconds in, it was just like bright red line. It's like, yep, I am sick. So, and then sadly, Steph avoided me. I locked myself in one room of her house, and she avoided me. But then after about after I was home for about three days, then she tested positive. So she's doing better now. I'm doing better now. I don't feel. I don't feel 100%, but I'm 90, 90%. <laughs> That's good enough. <laughs> I'm an old man now. I'll survive. <laughs> so that's where I'm at. But, uh, but other than that, it was a really Other than that, conference. you won an award. Yeah. I won an award. I, yeah, I won. I won the Kathy Murlock Jackson award that PCA gives, which is every year they give an award to one. Well, I guess former grad student. Cause I guess by virtue of, you know, even being eligible for the world or I'm not a grad student anymore. It's for the uh, best dissertation written by a PCA member every year. So at least according to whatever governing body, judging body judges, such things, they read all the dissertations by the random PCA members that came out last year and they decided mine was best. And and so got a little certificate and it was neat. So that was Yay. fun. Congratulations. Yeah. Yay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It's definitely the best dissertation. Before. It's the best dissertation I read last year. I don't know if that's the best one I can yeah. say. That. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, the only, it's the only one I read last year. So. Yeah. So, yeah. It was like, a, like a, I've read other ones. Uh, so I don't know if it's my, I don't know if mine's my favorite, but I appreciate that. And it, it was fun. And, you know, about five years from now, maybe Monica can win it. <laughs> that's the plan. You're, <laughs> we just must, must always make sure we get it. So, so that's what's we going on. We must always make sure that one podcast host is in grad school at all times so that's right so <laughs> by the time monica it's wayne has to enroll i, I will <laughs> retire and we'll have time to do that so yeah that's the <laughs> why not <No. laughs> seriously <laughs> what better are you going to do with your time <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. So. But anyway, that's that's your hair up there. We're not actually talking about PCA. We're not talking about my award. We're not even really talking about COVID, at least not directly. What are we talking about this week? Well, I think it's my topic, Mav. And I thought because there have been quite a few times over the past years that I have mentioned my work in museums or my training in museums and archives, especially during our disappearing media week, but other weeks in which I've mentioned that I've put together exhibits that are in town, in LA, if you're local, that you can come see, or discussions of how I know so much about fashion history, of having the pleasure of actually getting to see some of those objects in person. And so that to talking around the time of that Born Digital Week and thought it might actually make a really good episode to talk about what actually goes into making a museum exhibition, where all those objects come from, how you decide which objects are actually the ones that are in the exhibit, how you how much something like that costs, how you actually mount all of those objects, how you photograph them, how you put them in the catalog, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you mean uh, you mean they don't just you don't just take them out of a box, throw them on the wall, and then I go see them. You're saying there's more to it than because that's my experience. My experience is you knock on the door, they let you in and you look at stuff. That's how museums work. From my, yeah. so, so I've never worked in a museum. I don't know if that, <laughs> that's obvious. I've been to, I have been to many museums, but you've worked in one. Yes. I've actually worked at quite a few. Yeah. Yes. You worked in multiple Uh, museums. Yes. uh, So I don't know anything. Wayne, do you know anything? As I've mentioned on the show before, I uh, I was associated with the Museum here in Pittsburgh, a museum of cartoon art. Initially, just volunteering, you know, just going to exhibits and getting new people and then volunteering. Eventually, I was on the board and I did, uh, I I helped put together a few shows. I, I, oh, what's the word? I got curated a show of local artists at one point mm-hmm. i wrote a lot of a lot of tech pieces script pieces for various shows that sort of so mm-hmm. so i have some experience in that but it's limited specifically to that mm-hmm. so, but okay. we have a couple well, guests who oh, have wonderful. also done stuff, i'm not so. helping today <laughs> yes. yep. we bring? so i'll start i brought my old boss who is the person who indoctrinated, trained, you know, one of those words. Brainwashed, groomed. Yeah. Taught me kind so, of show. so much. Taught me everything that I need to know about museums. Hi, Hi. 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 Thanks for having me. We would love. Yeah, that was a wonderful introduction. It. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we would love if you told the listeners a bit more about yourself that makes you sound so much more friendly and welcoming than I just did. I'm calling you a groomer, yes. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Oh yeah, my name is Kate Pamphlet. I am a former registrar for the Fitta Museum. I was there for 13 years before COVID. And then I became an independent contractor, contract registrar in the time since then. So yeah, that's my I have a fashion history background, but I love costume design in particular. Very cool. Very cool. And Wayne, somehow you found a guest. Yes, somehow I also involved museum and at this point, far more than I have been. Our returning guest, my friend, roommate, Marcel, who has been here many times. Hi, Marcel. Welcome back. Hello. Hello. I've made the arduous journey to my room. <laughs> Participate again. How is everybody? Good. Good. So you've got, you have a specific experience. You have not worked in many museums, but you've worked in one, right? Or you've been... Or have you worked in more than one? I don't so know. So I've actually, I was thinking about this. So, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, curating shows in museums, but I think adjacent to that is curating shows in galleries, you know, and there's, yes. 
there, there's, that you I know, have there's, done. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot yes. of, I think there's a lot of overlap. Certainly in my experience, there has been. And while, yes, I've been very involved with Tunesium over the years, thinking back on it, you know, I mean, I used to work at the Pittsburgh Center for the Arts and I was there mm-hmm. a long time ago. And while I wasn't directly involved with the curation or organization of shows, that was my first introduction to the world of doing that. And uh, so, you know, between my experience at the Center for the Arts, my experience, experience with the Tunesium and like going right into the present as well. You know, I work at the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh. And one of the things that I have as my day job is we have our comic book hoods pal that they publish and produce. One of the things that made it an attractive option for me to work there was, you know, they have historically had gallery space. They have used art and they have partnered with art organizations in their mission of talking about the Holocaust. And some of these exhibits they've had have been extremely powerful and just very creative in their usages of art and different kinds of art and media. So I am surrounded by it a lot. And so I do have a lot of thoughts on it. And nicely, they are all, they come from different places in my life. You know, so it gives me a nice little overview of some of the things I've, that I've seen that I think work and some of the things that work a little less well. Yeah. Well, maybe I that's share a, some of that with you. Maybe that's a great place to start. And especially a question for Bav as someone who says that they've been to a lot of museums but haven't curated mm-hmm. is what do we actually think <laughs> makes a good exhibit, right? Yeah. Slightly leaning in that, like I have worked for and been parts of, you know, been a display in several art galleries, which I guess is similar, but like that's me working you know like when i worked with creative treehouse which was a pittsburgh art gallery that existed for a long time that i joined because you know they used to show my work <laughs> that sort of thing so i've got a that little bit of experience that i hadn't really considered but i think of it as different so yeah that's one question is how is it different because i that's my only real experience who wants to go first i have thoughts but that's all well, Marcel, do you have any perspective on that? Because I haven't worked in a gallery gallery before. Hmm. I think you just you look at the institution, you know, like because there's Stephen King has a there's a passage where he talks about size and scale. And I love thinking in those terms because really, I think a lot of it, like, what is the difference between a museum and a gallery? Well, in a large measure, I think it has to do with scale. You know, galleries have the, you think you could look at it as the advantage of, you can be small and you can have intimacy in a gallery space. You know, your your mission as a gallery, I think, can be very specific and pointed. But also, I've, you know, I've been to places that are small museums, so I think that line can get very blurred. Mm-hmm. But I do, I would say like, what is the difference? What is the primary difference between a museum and a gallery? I think the primary difference is scope and scale. I would say, I would offer that I think a museum space, there is greater expectation that the experience being offered presents a measure of learning for the attendees. And that comes from, I actually participated in a study, not a, it was more than a study a few years ago about, there was a local organization here, a local nonprofit. I won't say who they are, but they were partnering with one of the universities in town to do a study, determine the viability of starting a small museum, like based around a specific filmmaker. So I won't go into super detail, but it's a filmmaker with Mm -hmm. very strong Pittsburgh ties and recognition. So what the students were doing is they went around, like around the country even, and they did this through COVID. So like prop 
props to them. But they basically checked out the landscape of small galleries and museums and things focused on a specific thing to find out like what are what makes them work and what makes them tick and what are the expectations and what do people think of them after just to survey the landscape. And one of the things that came out of it that wasn't a surprise, but it was neat to hear it articulated was when audiences go to, we'll say, small museums like the expectation is not just like they're they're going to have fun regardless of the subject because a lot of these were you know very specifically oriented spaces you know think of like there's like the comedy museum that exists here in pennsylvania now and i think it's in pennsylvania but people expect to learn something that's like the primary thing that people visit those spaces for so i i would say scope and scale and the expectation that in a museum space you're more likely to learn something I think it's a really interesting question because for me, my first thought was, well, in a gallery, those pieces are for sale and in a museum, Uh, they're not. But at the same time, as somebody who works in historic dress and textiles or has seen auction houses like Cora Ginsburg is an incredibly famous Mm -hmm. and textile auction house where that's sort of all they specialize in. A lot of those objects are then like things that are being purchased by a museum to then put them on display. And so there is a sense of of how are we ascribing the values to those things? Or one of my favorite Instagram accounts is Shrimpton Couture. And she does vintage clothing that is almost entirely meant for like red carpet events because it's gowns where she has the runway photography and it's these incredibly like showy, um, dressy pieces. It really look and sometimes when she's talking about the provenance of why this one would be a good one to buy, she'll be like, oh, well, the Met has this version in red or something. And so it's like, well, obviously this is a good dress or the Met wouldn't have bought it for the Costume Institute. Right. And so it's uh, the only difference is it's for sale or not for sale. But that's there is something I think you're right, Marcel, about the expectation that when you go to a museum, you are learning about the thing versus the gallery has the thing on display just for like the aesthetic appreciation of it and the purchase and the purchaseability yeah i think that's where i tend to see the difference is definitely in the at least in the gallery they're pretty upfront about the commercial implications of their what they're displaying of the artwork that they're displaying the decorative arts or whatever the medium is whereas in a museum it's not so straightforward it's more the result of a commercial more likely the result of a commercial exchange than it is like the impetus for it so it's it's definitely they play into each other because you know a gallery is going to impact what the museum wants to collect mm-hmm. you know as in the same way that a museum is going to impact what a collector and is wanting and what a gallery is going to show so there's an interplay between the two for sure well i never considered it but you're right at ideally at any gallery show in a perfect world there's nothing left on the walls at the end right like in, in a perfect world you sell every single piece that never happens but like that's the that would be the best case scenario. And you never expect that out of a museum, obviously. So it's not what the primary purpose is. I never really considered it, but I see what you're saying there. But at the, at the same time, the museum is still incredibly reliant on being able to purchase any of those things. It's, oh, yeah. It's, yeah. It's much more hidden in terms of, as Megan was saying, commercial exchange. But it does mean, lead me to also think about when we talk through the idea of like, corporate archive or corporate collections that then put things on display like that that's one in which it is also incredibly commodified because the reason that a corporate would want to put those things on display is then to be able to sell something else because the object has become representative of 
brand or desirability in the example of like, if you see a costume at a movie theater, then maybe you want to purchase the tickets to go see that movie. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Okay. I, I would argue that yes, it has a marketing purpose for the, the corporations, the studios to display their, you know, the artifact from the film, the hero, I think we term hero costumes as in worn by the main actors for during filming, but it's very effective just to create an experience in the way that like we're so into experiencing things in museums as well nowadays is like it's almost interactive even though you're not interacting with the object on display you're getting this extra element of entertainment out of seeing the movie because a lot of times yes you may be seeing a different movie and you see this these objects and you think oh well now i want to see that movie but it has the like additional entertainment edge to it also which i think is interesting about that those displays which perhaps is another key difference between our ideas of gallery or museum which is a lot of times mm-hmm. exhibits also have like coinciding exhibition design versus when you think about a gallery you really do think about like white walls in which things have just been like hung on top of them and thought as to how they're arranged i mean i'm sure that when people are designing galleries there is some thought into that put into that but that is kind of the fundamental of a ga- of an exhibition design is mm-hmm. the the movement through the gallery and mm-hmm. it's usually there's some expectation that you're going in a certain direction from one end of the story that's being told to you to the other end whether it's from one room to the other like you know you may have a series of galleries that are connected and you go from one part of it to the, to the other part you may not be expected to go in a certain direction in a room but there also may be explicit directions or like the way the gallery is designed might be kind of pushing you towards one side of a gallery and then you go to the other side as you kind of maybe zigzag through it. So that's very different, I think. The museum had elements of both. I mean, it was technically a museum, but because of space, it wasn't like that we didn't have a permanent collection where you go when people came and saw the same exhibits or whatever. It was very much a rotating series of gallery shows, essentially, where we, the Avengers movie came out and had Avengers display for three months. And then, and with something else, and you know, a lot of those were definitely designed that walkthrough in mind of the order of seeing things. Yeah, I, I, I have had heard at some point the Tunisian described as a boutique gallery space, and mm-hmm. you know, not to diminish what the Tunisian was, of course, but I actually felt that was kind of appropriate because it was so specific and even at its largest when it was in its downtown space you know and it had dual galleries you know one on one side and literally another on the other that just felt right to me like internally at least and you know some of those some of the exhibitions that were there things were for sale others nothing was for sale you know where the work was from a collection or a group of collections sometimes from people that were directly affiliated with the Tunesium sometimes from abroad you know we brought in shows and you know it was a very mixed bag also uh, megan and monica while you were talking and i loved monica that you used the word commodify in relation to in, in relation to the relationship of museums and art and such in gallery
stories and art because it made me think of just from a logistics point of view you know you have a show at a museum and maybe that art on the walls is not being sold per se but the as you mentioned the experience is being sold now that is a thing and even for non-art museums like they just go to a history museum science museum right you're selling tickets to get in the door you're you're yeah. merch merchandise and that's yeah that was the thing i thought because maybe you know i go to this museum and see the mona lisa and obviously i'm not going to buy the mona lisa but i guarantee you i could buy prints or t-shirts or stuff with the mona lisa on it so (laughs) that opens a can of worms when you are talking about rights and reproductions which is one one of many hats i wore at the fitta museum because just like it sounds like with the tunes museum the fitta museum is very small Mm -hmm. and it's oh i want to say 30,000 square feet of gallery space on the first floor and then it was it's at the fashion institute of design and merchandising which is a downtown la college like a really more of a like they didn't offer bachelor's degrees until like 2009 2010 so it was more of like a two-year college or like a certificate like junior college type college yeah and so it was meant to support the students but also provide a public service because the galleries were always open free to the public which is pretty amazing and they would do these rotating exhibits because there just weren't there wasn't enough space to have a permanent gallery but it was just enough to do some pretty outstanding costumes design exhibitions so i so we would rotate through film costume tv costume film costume tv costume and let me tell you when you're trying to schedule things around an outside event that you have no control over in this case the oscar nominations and the oscar you know academy awards ceremony and then the on the other side of the year the emmys nominations and the emmys award ceremony you get restricted and And so we were having trouble finding a way to make our history, historical collection be seen. So we, we were able to convince the powers that be that we should open a, like, kind of wall off a part of the galleries just a small area that we could do per- not permanent exhibits of exhibits of our permanent collection to inform the community that there was a permanent collection in addition to these costume design exhibitions because the costume design exhibitions were entirely organized from incoming alone pieces mostly from the studio archives and production companies and the various other entities that might own the costumes from current film so it's a very different process to curate a historical exhibit than it is to curate a completely alone. It's kind of hard to explain in the right terminology that you're getting contemporary film costumes, but they could be historical in style. They could be period costumes. They could be Western. They could be sci-fi or contemporary clothing. But they're all from recently released conditions. films. They're yeah. all from films released in the previous year. So it's a, just a different level of care required. You know, of course, you want to take very good care of them. They're all loaned objects, but they don't require the level of planning and execution that you have with a historic textile because historic textiles are inherently really fragile. So you also have a different level of research in the two different types of exhibitions. So with a 
costume design exhibition where it's kind of a the information's out there for you like you can look at publicity releases like press releases for the film you can look at like interviews magazine articles the information's right there kind of out in the open especially when social media came about it it was really easy to get like tidbits from the costume designers and then you know you have the costume designer come in person sometimes to check how the costumes look once they're dressed on the mannequins and you can talk to them about the design process and what it was like filming or get little pieces of information that way but it didn't it doesn't necessarily affect your planning of the exhibition you just kind of gather the information as you go the planning was a little bit different and it was a short turnaround for the planning because you're always doing it on an annual basis films and television you just keep an eye on both media and what is going to catch the eye of the viewer what's catching your eye what people are talking about what's a good variety of different genres different periods different styles that you can bring in to the gallery so that you have a lot to to show the visitor when you're doing a historic exhibition it's you know a different process you might start with research you might start with objects it sort of depends on your topic but I was not curator by title at the museum I was the registrar which meant that I was involved with all of the processing of acquisitions for the collection. And a lot of our acquisitions were rooted around kind of filling out exhibitions that we had planned and catalogs and that whole process. So I was involved in a kind of integral role in, in planning and making object lists and making sure that all the information is accurate. It was very data management driven and then help the curators with research and you know revisions of their texts panels and that kind of thing. Then I got an opportunity to create an exhibition on a runway fashion photography collection in the museum. And that was me choosing the object, me writing all the text and editing it and working with the curators to cut it down because it's always so many words. And I did oral history interviews with the photographer who came out from New York and was really involved with the process. And so I just got to go through that whole the whole process from start to finish on my own project, which was really fantastic. But it only got to be shown for five weeks because we were on this really kind of external calendar that we couldn't control. So that it's a lot of work. Can't even tell you how much work that was. <laughs> for that, I spent two years, more than two years, really, but two years working on it where I knew like, okay, this is the date we're going to do the exhibition. And it took me two years to do, for sure. And that was with like several years in a, you know, I'd say like five years ahead of time knowing that it was a possibility and like starting to think about it and going through like I was going through all the photography during that time so mm. you know a lot of museum exhibits and you know they can be a turnaround in a year very few are done in less than a year but that's if you're going to do a catalog and if you're going to be acquiring objects or looking for loans outside of your institution it can be a much longer process which I, I would love to wow. hear with your experience with the Tunesium and working with more like illustration and 2D objects. Is that also equivalent timeline that you guys were running into? Or is this something that comes much more when you're actually dealing with like the couriering and handling of these of these textile objects? 
<laughs> you want to go first? I it depended on the show. I mean, so much of for a lot of the like I mentioned the Avengers show for a lot of that sort of thing. The we there were a number of local art collectors, one of whom was on the board, so we had access to people who had private collection stuff. So we were able to assemble pieces for the Avengers show really pretty easily. A lot of it came from this one guy's collection, as well as other people we knew. I would reach out to some of the local comic shops and find people that way. So some of that came together very easily. Others that we were affiliated with took a whole lot more time. And you, Marcel, you can probably talk more about this than I can. We did the March exhibit in conjunction with a couple of other organizations here in town. And that was a much bigger, longer, drawn out, complicated process. Mm-hmm. Specifically marches, not the month. Yeah. No, no, I, mean, right. yeah. no I, I was there. Yeah, I know yeah, what it is. Yeah, no. I mean, for yeah, the listener, no. March, March yeah. is what? Yeah. So it's referred to, we refer to it colloquial, colloquially as the March exhibit, <laughs> but it was like the formal name of it was like MLK, the Montgomery story. And from MLK to March, that was what it was yes. called. Yeah. And it yeah. actually yeah. focused on history of such comics and comics works from Martin Luther King, the Montgomery story, legendary free comic biographical comic that was published in the 1950s i'm sorry it's like six it's like six, the, the montgomery yes. story is i think 16 pages it's yeah. not it's very short it's really yeah yeah it's available for free online it, you mm, can yes. find now. it very easily yes. yeah and you know that has a whole story behind it of yeah. course but it, you know it came out i believe it first came out in 1957 it's yes. partly biographical it's partly instructional it was you know of course published to to assist and inform people during the original civil rights movement and violent revolution exactly mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and mm-hmm. stay alive during a nonviolent yes. revolution yeah. and so you know you it basically you had that book ending the release of the march graphic novel series and you know and, and which was is the life story which tells the life story of the late congressman john lewis who also visited during the event so that was a very you know that was a very yeah that very large event that was probably single largest mm-hmm. exhibition that the Museum ever put on and you know this was done in conjunction with a partnership at the august wilson center downtown and it was so popular that they actually didn't moved it back across the street to the Museum and extended its run there were there were other components to that exhibitions run you know there was you know like there was a, a panel discussion with with, you know, with the subject, with John Lewis and the creators of the graphic novel, they came to town and it was a big deal. I mean, it was yeah. that was definitely a big deal. There was also a display mm-hmm. of political artwork mm-hmm. dealing with the civil rights movement and its precursors from, you know, from the previous century up to the present. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that, that was one where I remember there was a very specific walkthrough element of that. Like it started yeah. with blown up pages from the Montgomery story so you could read them on the wall order and then started showing primarily political cartoons dealing with civil rights movement, mm-hmm. race issues, the way that was portrayed media. Chronologically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, chronologically up through you know, the 70s, the 80s, 90s. And then followed the end of it was exhibits from the graphic novel March. So it had a very distinctive flow to it, mm-hmm. as well as written panel descriptions, um, giving a lot more information on all of this. Mm-hmm. It was very definitely telling a story. I mean, like Megan said, talked about telling a story. This is telling a story of it essentially tells the story of how the civil rights movement over you know evolved over five decades to be the BLM movement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And Megan and Monica, you know, I thought it it just comes for me, it comes back to at least a little bit of what you were talking there before about where, 
you know, in terms of the actual art that was on display there and like how, you know, procuring these elements and, you know, what's involved with that versus maybe other kinds of art, you know, oftentimes at Toonzeum shows, the art that is on display is not the original art. And so I think, you know, if you're leaning into an exhibit where it's about the attendee having the experience of encountering this art, that you don't necessarily need to see the original art, although there is something very powerful in seeing certain pages of original art or certain artists work of original art but like the march exhibit it was pretty much all you know reproductions of art Mm -hmm. that was there and so it was the contextual element of what the audience was invited to see and i think that made that so special you know i think of just like what what has been on display historically at the tunesium and it was definitely a very mixed bag and we're not even getting into exhibits that were that were augmented by just things like merchandise and things like that but if we're just even strictly speaking about Comics art in a museum or gallery or exhibition setting, any of those. It's a strange thing when you think about it, because that is not what that art was designed for. It was designed to be experienced in a whole other context. So when you take that and you put it in a setting like, you know, it was in a, in a publication, the experience it's a functional the aspect artwork, of, yeah, it's singular, like you know, like it is yeah. meant to be a one on one type of experience. But in a space, you know, you can experience that artwork with a group of people. And it's also out of it can be out of context. So it can be a very strange experience, but it can have its own value that way as well. I want to build on that a little bit, though, because so the Tunesium and what you're getting at is um, if I go to the Tunesium and I see a Kirby piece, which I've seen a Jack Kirby piece, Jack Kirby is an amazing artist who drew way too much for the reproduction technology of the day. But that said, he knew what he was producing was not being designed to be hung on a wall. What he was producing was being designed to be shrunk down to a factor of one eighth its size so that it could be mass printed in a publication. But I would argue that if you talk about Monica and Megan's museum, the same thing is true. Like, yes, if I have something, okay, I know that the Black Panther outfits were at Monica's museum at one point. If I, you know, those Black Panther outfits were not built to be officially to be (laughs) stared at in a glass box. They were built to be seen on a 40 or 50 foot tall screen at a distance, right? Like, it's a, I mean, it's a functional aspect being used as art in a way that I appreciate because I'm a nerd who loves this stuff, but, but it is not the same as the Mona Lisa exists so that you can stare at the Mona Lisa. Absolutely. And that's really an interesting point that comes up frequently when you're installing for an exhibition with film costumes and prop. The costumes are not meant to last. And I will tell you, many of you are very much into superhero comics. Um, I don't know if you're into the movies. I haven't listened quite enough to know that yet. But costumes are often made out of molded polyvinyl chloride, PVC. That is a material that has inherent instability in its chemical structure. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And we call it inherent vice in the museum world. And that means that it melts just 
degrades, it starts turning into a different chemical structure over time. It loses its firmness. So it usually comes as a foam and uh, when it's molded and it works very well for the purposes of shooting a movie for three months. And I've had one co- a conversation with one costume designer from these films and I was explaining, lamenting to him as his costumes dripped onto the ground that, you know, they weren't going to last much longer, especially, you know, the, this, the, you know, we, museum lighting even wasn't, was so mm-hmm. much for them. And he said, well, that's not my problem. <laughs> In a very kind way. But he said, I'm not making costumes so that they can last for an eternity. I'm making costumes so they look good and they meet our budget and they serve their purpose during filmmaking. And mm-hmm. I was absolutely valid. Or I was wondering if ideally they they melt before the sequel so that they have to hire him again. (laughs) (laughs) He builds that into it. I mean, this is something that I've been running into. I've been doing a fair amount of kind of nerdy spacesuit research recently, and spacesuits are only ever meant to go to space once. And so the idea that these aren't just film costumes that that are falling apart. This Mm -hmm. is something that Megan and I encounter within um, a lot of textile objects. It's these inherent vices of things that Mm -hmm. are meant to degrade. This is something that came up a little bit during our disappearing media episode in terms of, you know, sometimes files just get Mm -hmm. corrupted. But also, yeah, sometimes celluloid film just disintegrates or explodes or catches on fire and has to be kept Mm -hmm. in a little safe tube so that it doesn't do those things and doesn't catch the rest of the archive on fire like (laughs) just like a part of the job and so it does mean that there are significant parts of collections that have either degraded to a point that they cannot be shown because putting them under museum lighting would destroy them too much or they are already at that point and they just can never be put on display again because they've literally fallen apart but they haven't fallen apart to the point of like being trash because they are still research objects or historical artifacts that could still be worthy of study especially mm-hmm. i don't know if the thing that you're studying is how does this pvc melt like that would be useful to be able to see it in, in <laughs> melt right that there are parts of museums that actually never make it to the exhibition that there you never get to see them they just exist in storage katya is not here right now this is more her area than mine hannah a little bit as well but i know a little bit this is what happens in in the literary studies world what, with what we call rare book rooms there are many texts that exist just so that scholars like myself, if I get enough special permission and plan ahead six months early, then I can get an appointment at wherever the archive is to be let into the special room by the curator who will give me access, provided I wear white gloves while I'm doing it, to where I get to look at something for, you know, 15 minutes. I got to tour like the rare books room at the uh, the pop culture archives at Bowling Green State when I was visiting there. And there were things like uh, this is meaningless unless you're a comic scholar. But I got to stand outside of a box that I know in theory inside of the box was a copy of Famous Funnies number one. Yeah. Now, Schrodinger's Famous I, Funnies. Yeah. Am I allowed to touch the copy of Famous <laughs> Funnies number one? No. Am I allowed no, to open no. the box to see if it's still in there? No, because no. air might get on it. <laughs> but I got to stand next to the box and that's as close <laughs> as I could do. That's as close as I get on the tour. It's like, oh, look, yeah. we do only own one of these things. And if you were important <laughs> enough, we would let you touch this rare thing 
that only nine of that we know exist in the world, you know, right. like that kind of thing. So it's the first American comic book in as much as what we call a comic book. But like, is it on display in their museum? No, no. heavens no. Nobody's allowed to see it. Because there's air and light in there. Yes. Well, and it's like, you know, it's newsprint. It is printed on newsprint from 100 years ago. <laughs> like literally the wind blowing will destroy it. Which, which wow. gets a bit to the point that I'm trying to circle around to, which is something that both Megan and Marcel, I feel like brought up a bit, was that when objects are put on display, they're put on display for a very different context from how you originally encountered them. Mm-hmm. Right? In the, Especially yeah, I, when it's something like fashion or a film costume, like you're not seeing it on a runway. Now you're seeing it in a museum exhibit the same way that now these comic books that you used to read by yourself because kids would make fun of you mm-hmm. if they saw you with a comic book are now inside a room blown up for everyone to see the comic book. And there's something where the best is, is that it's free, right? It's the narrative of the yeah, exhibition. The, yeah, yeah. The context of a single page on the wall taken out of a 24-page story or a 600-page graphic novel completely changes what that, that piece of work is. You, know, you see it outside of anything that came before or anything that came after. And I'm sorry I was no. talking. No, wait, that's exactly it. It's because when you take it out of the context, the thing that's happening is that's the job of the curator. Like that is the job of the person who has Mm -hmm. put all of these objects to tell you a greater story about how they all interact with each other and about the story that you Mm -hmm. are learning from the experience of being in the room with them all next to each other. And that's the thing that makes a museum exhibit special than just being able to do an archives visit or just being able to Mm -hmm. see a real old object in a gallery. It's that someone's job was to make that story and do that research and think about how all of those objects relate. Well, and that's going back to that Avengers exhibit that I, I mentioned. There was you know, art in there from Avengers from the 1960s up to far more current stuff. And it was all single pages out of context. There was nothing in there that told an Avengers story. But what the exhibit told was the story of the Avengers history, the different artists, the different mm-hmm. time periods, the different styles of art, just a you know, much broader view over what the Avengers had been in comics up to that point. I can't help but think about the temporal nature of a good exhibit and handling art. Because as we talk about different media, different types of a, whether it's, you know, fabric that was meant to be displayed on screen for this period of time, but now we've, we can display it in this, you know, a, a shared immediate context, but it's like, it changes its lifespan or whether these are really delicate comic book pages that have aged. And while I'm saying that, I also got to give a shout out to the Billy Ireland cartoon library and museum yeah. in Columbus, Ohio. I had the chance to get there during the past couple of years during the pandemic and they were really gracious and there are archive is crazy and it's a global archive and some of those pieces they have it, it is that's an experience some of their pieces will blow your mind things that you've seen your whole life and suddenly there's the original piece but again like you know you have this temporal nature of it and while you were all talking i was i couldn't help but think of can you imagine being in a car with something driving down the road during winter and maybe there's as you go down the road there's a bunch of different snowmen and snow women they're just like snow people along the road and, oh that's cute and that's pretty and then suddenly you encounter the most magnificent snowman you've ever seen and you think 
oh, that needs to be in a gallery. You know what? I'm going to put together a gallery show of snow people. So snow people <laughs> Go fast, are fighting a no. losing bat. Yeah, like right. they've only got so much time under any circumstances. But what if you actually wanted to do that? And like, how does that work? And what are the logistics of it? And who's going to want to see it? And why are you doing that? And what is the context for a snow person in a gallery yeah. show going to be? You know, like you're talking like there's so many factors at work there, but those same factors apply regardless of what it is, you know, whether it is fashion or whether it is 2D art or whether it is sculpture, you know, you have to take all those same variables into account. And, you know, if it's a sculpture, okay, maybe that sculpture might last a thousand years, two thousand years, who knows? Or might last a day, depending on the media. But, you know, you have to, there's all of those criteria that have to be taken into account. And, you know, and I think at the top end of it with the curation of a show and the conceptualization of any kind of exhibition, I think up front, you got to think about the two things I think have to be involved and feel free please to weigh in and on on your thoughts or but you have to think about who is it for and why are you doing it? like what's the purpose of it? because the best exhibits i've ever attended and been a part of had a very clear sense of who it was for and why it was there and because when everything else i think can wrap around those things but if you know if those two things aren't locked down from the beginning your show is going to suffer i would push it that a little bit i think it depends i think it depends on the audience so i'm thinking about i mean what you just said about the you know, there's you can have art that's meant to last a thousand years you can have a sculpture that's meant to last forever the venus de milo is still mostly there we've got you know most of the pieces and then you've got by comparison you've got an ice sculpture that you know you get four hours right like, like that's a that's and both equally you know i would say equally artistic in their own ways they take a different kind of a different kind of production and they're meant to last a different amount of time one's ephemeral the other is not but i would say the same is true of any installation where the exhibit the installation is part of the art anytime i have performance art anything like that those are that is part of the story what does it mean to do a performance piece in an exhibit that has comic book art versus an exhibit that has costume art versus an exhibit that has it has paintings. If I do the same performance, it's different in those three different museums. But mm-hmm. on the other hand, if it's performance art, the entire point of like of stage theater is if I go to Broadway, it's never the same show twice. Right. It's a little different than the way we think of a movie. But on the other hand, I think that movies are different in different places. I saw uh, Avengers Endgame twice back to back. I saw the opening night and then I saw it again the next night with Steph. And the audience opening night was super hype. The audience that was there at, you know, matinee time the next afternoon was, you know, much more polite, totally different experience. So, like, I think that context always affects the art. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's part of the story you're telling. And the reason I bring that up is because much like I'm always very hesitant to like, I, I never want to be the guy that says Avengers Endgame is a more or less important movie than La Strada. Like, you know, to pick just like some random classic film. Right. I enjoy both because I'm a weird film nerd. Right. But like, I enjoy Spider-Man comics and I also enjoy merch. One of them has a much more historic relevance, but I'm only saying that as a weird comic book nerd who's also into literary 
studies, right? Like if I'm not into the civil rights movement, then March is a weirdly meaningless comic to me. I mean, yeah. it's well, but not. But I think that comes back to considering yeah. who is your audience. You know, like right. if I'm curating the a show uh, for six year old exhibit. Yeah, you know, like I mean, <laughs> you're you're right in that the like all these contextual elements can change the meaning of it. But you know, if I have a show, if I have a Spider Man show, but all the ways that I present it are things that would really be appealing to an mm-hmm. entirely different demographic. You know, is that helping the art and what we're trying to communicate or is it hindering? Like, I don't know. I mean, those are somewhat. Well, there's, those are the questions that go into the curating a show. Like, who is this for? What message or what story are we trying to tell? The easy thing thing is to say, it's for everybody, but that's not real. Yes, that's not a yeah. thing that you really do when you curate anything. Right, right. And we're talking, you know, just because of the people on this episode, we're talking comics and we're talking costuming and that sort of thing. My One of the trips I made to San Francisco to the Cartoon Art Museum there had both. There were costumes from the Marvel movies. They had Black Panther helmet. They had the Doctor Strange costume on a mannequin in the middle of their exhibit space with art on the wall of those characters. And seeing that context was interesting, how the physical costume was different from the comic book version of it. So you know, there was a contextual difference there in seeing those things displayed together. I love that. I My dream is always to show the, it's just anytime you can show the concept design with a like physical production of it, there's always this like massive amount of work that goes into taking a concept and turning it into something like especially a two-dimensional sketch and turning it into something three-dimensional that actually works on the human body mm-hmm. and i just i love being able to see that transformation so that's really cool that you got to see that yeah and especially because the comic books are the source material even if the costume designer is going to change elements like design elements that's still going into their thinking yeah. as the origin for the design I- yeah, really cool. I wanted to mention why we, specifically why we have this group here. You know, so I work at the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh and we've traditionally had art gallery spaces and that serves to help augment our mission because we're usually able to have some kinds of different kinds of shows and exhibits sometimes called from our archives, sometimes called from other sources that help us to bring the narrative to life and to really shine a spotlight on like the micro histories of the Holocaust. Like, I think that's when it, the gallery spaces have worked most effectively, when they've really made the experience more human and humane. And when we were in our previous space in Greenfield here in Pittsburgh, if I had to pick my single favorite non Hutzpah exhibit that we've ever put on there, it was one called Stitching History from the Holocaust. And this was an exhibit that was originally curated by the Jewish Museum of Milwaukee and traveled the different locations and we brought it to we brought it here to Pittsburgh in I think when this was about four or five years ago this was pre-pandemic short version of the history of this exhibit was it was a series of, of dresses outfits that were designed by a designer named Eddie Sterned who had lived in Germany with her husband Paul uh, during the Holocaust she, she died during the Holocaust but her dress designs survived and had made it to family here in the United States but they had gone undiscovered for years and years then they had been unearthed and they were brought to the attention of a group of people who actually made the dresses from 
Sternad's designs. So what we had was these dresses called from these designs from 80 years ago. And so we had them on a series of mannequins and there was an entire backdrop that went up with them. And I mean, we had a very limited space over there. Like it was limited, but we made the most out of it. But it was a defined space. That's probably a better way to describe it. Everything about that specific exhibit worked so well. That's the That was the main one where I felt like when you walked in the door and literally our space was so defined that when you walked in the door, bam, you were pretty much in the exhibit, but it was transformative. Like it, that one kind of lifted you out of your physical space. And it's, and it was very simple really in terms of its execution. There was, you know, maybe a half dozen or so mannequins in the different dresses, shoes and hats and, you know, and accoutrements. And, and there was, and you saw representations of the original sketches that were done like beside each dress. So here was her design and here's the actual dress. And we had some literature available for how the dresses came to be. There was, like I said, large back drops that displayed the areas in which Eddie lived and it was just so transformative and it brought you along on that journey and I said this is the height of what something like this can do you know it brings you out of yourself it connects you to another human being in another time another place and you could walk through that exhibit by yourself and get something out of it you could walk through it with others and get something out of it you know I think of that one often but you know now our space has changed we're not no longer located in that that same building we are partnered with chatham university and we have an exhibit called revolving doors and revolving doors is instead like now that's meant to tell a larger history of anti-semitism and that is called from the holocaust center's archives and it's in listening to this overall discussion it makes me it makes me rethink like the things that i've been a part of there is some hutzpah art in revolving doors and there are pieces that are art that were created as and designed as art i guess you could say high art and low art if you're trying to label such things there are some things that were not art but they are there for more historical value and context but it, it you walk in, in that space and it's transformative in a different way so that is meant to walk you through the history of anti-semitism the physical space that this takes up is about the same as stitching history it's not as immersive as stitching history was but i typically lead groups through revolving doors and so far they've been small groups i mean the space isn't very large it can maybe accommodate 10 people at a time most people that walk through go through in about 40 to 45 minutes and there's mixed media and space and everything but it's kind of amazing just to watch people you know i usually give people an introduction when they walk in and then let them find their way through if they have questions they'll ask questions and you can volunteer certain things and like i said there is some hutzpah art that illustrates some portions of it and we usually will give attendees copies of hutzpah i had one one family just immediately say wow this needs to be up on the walls which is very flattering but it is a it's a humbling thing to watch people you to watch them absorb i'm going to say art in its largest sense because even though a lot of the items in there and there are not in and of themselves art but there's the art of of curating this experience for them and helping them understand this history and when you see them get it some people are more talkative than others some are very quiet but you see you can see and feel their wheels turning and them you know gaining a little bit more understanding of what all of these items are here for and what they meant in their time and or for the more modern pieces you know what that means to our current time i like to think of all like these different art exhibitions and things that i've been a part of whether i've been a, an actual participant and had art in it or i'm doing what i'm doing now and trying to help other people understand art that they're encountering like that to me is it's like it's high purpose i mean i don't really like the idea of high art low art and all that kind of thing but i mean for me the big purpose of it Great. is you know you gotta you, yeah because i mean you can 
can, <laughs> to quote the genius Lex Luthor, <laughs> you can read the ingredients on a packet of chewing gum <laughs> and get the, you know, and learn and lock the secrets of the universe. Okay. Or, you know, you could look at something very small and just figure something out. And I love seeing people figuring something out, you know, however big or small that is and leaving. I like to think a little bit better for the experience. And I didn't really have a point to that, but kind of everything that was being has been discussed tonight. I think what makes a good ex- what makes a good exhibit, what makes a good museum experience, like when have you curated a good experience? I think when your audience walks away a little bit better in some way, shape or form. Marcel, I think hearing you talk one, you hit on two things for me, which is one, our ideas of like authenticity or our ideas of power. And one, I think most people don't realize when they go into an exhibition, how much is potentially reproduction or how much has been created specifically for the exhibition and experience itself as like an individual moment. Like the amount that might come from your actual museum collection as the like the kernel of the idea that became the exhibit is usually very little. When you think about the amount of text that has to be written to go with each of those objects that didn't exist before because all that object had to start with was its accession label, right? It had the year, it had the artist, it had the thing that it's made out of and that's kind of it. Like every everything else that you learn about the exhibit was something that was made for you to then go see it. But also when it comes to conservation work, you're not supposed to notice the parts where an object had to be fixed or repaired to look more complete to be able to tell the story better or to be able to exist more securely or safely on a mount in order to be in the exhibit hall for the three month, four month runtime for it to, you know, when it's used to living in its like safe little home inside the storage facility with all its like very sensitive box without any light and air or air, right? And or and I think that unless you are really looking for it, the experience should be seamless in terms of understanding if something like these dresses were reconstructed or were original objects, or if the point is that they've been reconstructed by someone later in order to bring about their story. Like those are the things that come because you are in the exhibition space. And if we think about if the thing that makes it effective is for someone to walk away with things, they're not walking away because they saw an object. They're walking away because of all of the labor and all of the intent that went into that that takeaway. And that's an inherently very powerful thing when you think about the variety of stories that people could come in and could walk away from, knowing that when you come into a museum, your expectation is that this is an institution that will teach you something at an institution that has an air of authenticity or veracity or authority to it. And so I just think it's something that we really take for granted when we go to a museum, but as people who are museum professionals, should be something that we never take for granted in terms of we have a real opportunity to be able to highlight voices of makers who perhaps haven't been on exhibition before or don't exist in collections and therefore their objects should be accessioned into permanent collections and or the places where you can tell larger overall narratives about objects that you think that you know already. And those are all really important spaces in terms of what makes a good exhibition. For me, it's those elements where I want people to learn something, but I want them to learn something that they wouldn't have known had they just looked around on the internet by themselves. Like I I want them to Mm -hmm. learn something that came because we put in the work as historians and the archivists and the curators 
to to put those things in front of them and for their relationality and their reproduction to mean something greater. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, yeah, Monica, I totally agree. It's like a labor of love for sure for a museum professional because you know you're not not in it for the money. But there's so much to that. You mean uh, like, as opposed to all the very rich academic pursuits. Yeah, you know, <laughs> we're just rolling in it, that's for sure. Yeah. I, I do, I think that people who work as curators or in other roles at, the muse- at museums, they take it very seriously. It's a responsibility to, especially for accuracy and to make sure that this, the information you're conveying is as accurate as you possibly can make it when that label goes up. And if there's an issue that you correct it as soon as you can because you just don't you don't want to be you are a source of authority and that credibility should be upheld as part of your primary goal in your work so I think it's a bit of pressure for sure but it's also the fun part about being in that world and the social media part too (laughs) that's a lot of fun So, so we resolved, resolved nothing. nothing. <laughs> <laughs> we resolved that you should pay us more, but I'm not in charge of that. Yeah. <laughs> <You're here. laughs> yeah, well, that's often one of the ideas. You know, there's a whole big question of the place of capitalism and the arts and blah, 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 blah. But like, yeah. I would just like to make a living wage. <laughs> <Never show. laughs> yeah. No, this was great. I, this was, I learned a lot because this was a lot of these episodes. I always worry that I'm talking too much and I had very little to add here today other than asking questions so this was great for me <laughs> I hope it's great for you guys because I certainly wasn't adding anything but I learned a lot so definitely Megan and Marcel especially thank you for joining us it's great yeah, thank you so much thanks for having us thank you for inviting me Megan is there anything you'd like to plug well I just want to keep reiterating the FIDA Museum is open free to the public and they currently have their art of costume design in film exhibition, which Monica, did you work on this? I did one? work on this one. I can't remember if I saw you. Yeah. So <laughs> I encourage everyone to get out and see it while it's up. I believe it closes on May 6th. It's open from 10 a.m. till 5 p.m. Tuesday through Saturday. As long so as they haven't changed, changed the date since I worked there. That <laughs> sounds right to me. Yeah, right. like, I, you're not there when it's open, I assume. <laughs> you're putting things up when it's not when it's yes, closed, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So when all the exhibits um, come yeah. alive, right? And as soon as it's sparkly yeah, and looks like good, whole... I'm like, my job is done. Bye. Yeah. Oh no, I assume Wayne was talking, you know, kind of an Owen Wilson situation here, right? <laughs> yeah. Marcel, what about you? I'm sorry, I'm creeped out now with the idea of going into a museum and stuff's coming alive. So, sorry, I'm terrified beyond the capacity of rational thought. No, you can find me everywhere on, I just type in my name, there I am. But I, predominantly, I work on Hutzpah and I work at the Holocaust of Pittsburgh. And people, anybody who is, if you found anything that I talked about here of any interest, you're certainly invited to come see our exhibit, Revolving Doors. It is at Chatham University and tickets are available for Mondays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays. We have entry times at noon, 1 p.m. and 2 p.m. Tickets are free. They're available through Eventbrite. So you do have to register, but you 
certainly welcome to stop. And if you come on a Monday, more than likely you'll get to meet me. So love to meet you. And you can come in and challenge me and my thoughts. <laughs> that sounded like it was going to get a lot scarier than it turned out being. So I, was like, nah, <laughs> I thought nah. there was like a dual thing happening. <laughs> no, I'm no I'm that. I just smile, nod and back away slowly. It's all good. Wayne, what about you? You can read about me and all the hoodspot stuff you're looking up for Marcel. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, though, because there is Hutzpah artistic. Yeah, arguably that is actually true. Yeah, Yeah, that's the closest to a real plug that you've done in a long time. So, yeah, it's true. It's true. And Monica, Uh, you know, my social media is actually full of photographs of what mannequins look like when they don't have clothes on because I think that they're hilarious. So if you'd like to look at any of those, I don't know why, but you can find me on Instagram or on Twitter and that's at Monica Marvelous. On Twitter, that's L-O-U-X and on Instagram, that is L-O-U-S. And as always, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, all of the places, always at Chris Maverick. You can follow the show, all those same places except Instagram. Someone give us back our damn Instagram account. I'm very upset that we are still not on Instagram because we've done nothing wrong and I'm sad, but the show is on Twitter, if Twitter still exists, you know, who knows? And Facebook at Vox Popcast. You can also follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com, where we post about whatever we're going to be talking about next week. I'm not sure what that is. We need to figure that out, guys. But we'll say something there and we'll give you an idea. And you can leave us comments on this or any other episode, or you can suggest topics that you want us to talk about and you can give us your thoughts. And sometimes we pick guests from people who comment on the blog. That's always interesting. If you enjoy the show and we certainly hope you do, then please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever the hell else you get podcasts from and do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review. If you leave us a five-star review, especially on iTunes, Apple podcast, that gooses the algorithm, makes us more popular and really helps us out. I would like to thank Maximilian of Vault 4 Music for our epic theme song, building ever so more epically and playing us out. I'd once again like to thank both of our guests for joining us. I'd like to thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.